News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. One thing we've talked a lot about during this pandemic is people's mental health, because we know there has been a noticeable increase in the number of people who say, you know what, this pandemic is really impacting my mental health. Now, here we are coming up on the one-year anniversary of really when the restrictions began in earnest, and there are still a lot of people out there who are suffering from what we've all gone through over the past year. Interesting piece out this morning from Global News Lifestyle Managing Editor Artie Patel. We wanted to talk with her about it. Artie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell me, what is it that you took a look at in terms of mental health? So we have a four-part series on Global News called Alone and Apart. And the one this week focuses on the idea of what loneliness is actually doing to our mental health. So we spoke to several experts who say, you know, this has kind of existed before the pandemic. A lot of people are lonely. A lot of people are dealing with anxiety and depression linked to social isolation. But what's happening now is, you know, not only are people feeling more lonely, and there's countless studies that have said that, it's that a lot of people are forgetting, you know, basic social interaction skills. And experts fear that this is something that people may struggle with, you know, post-pandemic or even, quote, the new reality. That is so interesting. So we're going to have to learn to kind of get to know each other after, potentially, when this is all over? Yeah, so what are the experts are saying, and this is the part that really stuck out to me, is that, you know, for a lot of people, it isn't the interaction with their friends or family that they're missing. It's really strangers. So when you go for a coffee, you know, to your barista, or if you're at the grocery store, and you're talking to a sales associate, or sometimes, you know, if you're a parent, and you see another parent at a park, and you have this random exchange of communication, that's what people are missing right now. And that's the part that almost seems awkward trying to get back into, because, For a lot of people, this pandemic has created a bit of a fear around being near others, being close to each other, especially when you're having conversations. The experts were talking about, you know, something as simple as wearing a mask has changed that interaction for us. Oh, that's so true. Because I think you you end up with two groups of people, don't you? The people who are like, I still need to socialize. Those are the rule breakers who are doing that right now. And then there's the people who are the real rule followers. I think it's probably going to be harder for them to adjust. For sure. And I think that's uh, that's what one, one of the experts talked about, too, is this idea really of chronic loneliness. You know, and she was telling us how it's, for some people, it is a very slight effect. You know, you know, yeah, they may feel a little bit isolated or lonely, but they're fine. Like, they're able to have their Zoom calls. But for others, it's it's really hard to not have that face-to-face interaction. Those are the kind of people that have been of a more dramatic effect. So did they, the people that you talked to, did they have suggestions on what we could do to mitigate the loneliness? For sure. And I think for everyone, it's very individualized and where you are and how you feel. And for a lot of people who may have been dealing with some of this before the pandemic, you know, they're the ones who say, if you aren't already seeing an expert or talking to a mental health expert, you know, this may be the time. Um, But for a lot of it, it, it comes down to multitasking, which I also found this interesting too. One of our doctors was telling us that, you know, our brain at this moment is trying to do so many things at once. You know, for a lot of people who mm-hmm. are working from home, you're working from home, you're parenting, you're 
at the house, you're, you're doing all these things at once and any little interruption is going to, you know, impact our attention and our mindfulness. So they're saying some of the most basic stuff is, you know, maybe disconnecting from your phone or listening to a bit of relaxing music or even filtering your email notifications. A lot of this yes. to simplify your living experience right now. And, and to not be so hard on ourselves, I think we all need to realize, yeah, we're kind of stuck at home for a lot of people who are just stuck. You're not really doing much right now, and that's okay. So I think instead of stressing over the stuff that you're not doing, it's really realizing, you know, okay, maybe I'm at home right now, and, and this is going to pass. And having that hope, too, that, yeah, right. this is not forever. You know, we're not going to be stuck here forever. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I know it's starting to feel like forever. Artie, Artie, thanks so much for your time this morning. No problem. Thank you. Now, you would think a significant number of people, they're still working from home, right? So that that means that things would be changing in the commercial real estate market. That isn't necessarily the case in Vancouver, though. CBRE Real Estate has been tracking the demand over the past few months. They've just released their 2021 outlook. So let's dive in with Jason Kisselbach from their Vancouver office. Jason, thanks for being here this morning. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. So what exactly are you guys tracking? Vacancies, occupancy, demand? What are you looking at? Uh, Short answer is all of the above, but commercial real estate closely uh, is tied to the underlying economic fundamentals of uh, GDP and jobs growth. And that really translates into demand for space, which means um, absorption, which is the take up of space, as well as um, vacancy uh, and availability of space. So, you know, c- commercial real estate uh, broadly is made up of several asset classes, and um, at any given time, they're they're performing differently. So, um, we've seen strong performance in the industrial asset class, really strong demand from users looking for space, and we already had uh, a low availability of space. The multifamily sector, which is really sales of apartment buildings, very strong investor demand for that asset class, and we're off to a really good start this year in terms of sales. Hmm. And then office and retail, uh, which were most challenged last year, just as a result of people not being able to gather in public spaces and um, some uh, offices sending employees to uh, to work from home. And uh, what we're tracking now is um, the early stages of demand picking up for office and retail and uh, hopefully continuation of that trend uh, and continued pickup of demand right. for uh, those assets this year. So, Jason, like last year, I remember there were many times when we talked about, um, oh, this is going to upend the commercial you know, real estate market because companies aren't going to need as much space, so they're going to give it up and things are going to be changing all over the place. Did any of that actually happen? Um, for office specifically, we saw an increase in the vacancy rates um, through summer, and uh, it has continued into um, the the latter part of last year. So our downtown office vacancy rates is 5.8% now, which is up uh, a few percentage points from uh, this time last year. So there was an increase in, in the vacancy rate. We're still the lowest uh, of any major city in North America, and that's still uh, very much in landlord's favor. So there wasn't this huge uh, availability of office space. And uh, what we're starting to have conversations about now is the return to work. So yeah, there, there will be some adjustments to how people um, uh, set up their office space, more uh, focus on health and safety, maybe spreading people out a little bit, but um, not this huge uh, shift that uh, mm-hmm. people were talking about last year. You mentioned the industrial market there for Metro Vancouver. How busy is that right now? 
uh, probably record levels of, of demand for industrial, um, and it's uh, it's really benefiting from this shift in consumer habits that was already happening before last year, which was um, you know online shopping, e-commerce, and um, the acceleration of the adoption to e-commerce last year for consumers placed a lot more uh, pressure on the industrial market uh, in a good way. And uh, so we're just seeing more and more demand for industrial space and uh, record levels of demand, record low uh, inventory. So very strong market. So nothing has really changed that much. This is kind of what we were hearing before the pandemic. Uh, Yeah, it hasn't changed too much. And, um, you know, Vancouver, by nature of its geography and the fact that uh, it takes a long time to get uh, new buildings through the permitting process and through construction, it's hard for us to oversupply our market. So that means in if there is a period of economic downturn, we don't see as much you know negativity in the commercial real estate market compared to some of the other bigger cities. So which industries right now do you think are are looking to expand and find more space in Metro Vancouver? Yeah, we're still tracking um, some good demand from tech users. Um, the film business has been very strong um, through last year, and uh, I think that's a really good thing for the future of the city. And then, you know, back on industrial, the e-commerce um, and food distribution is one that really grew last year. So did everything stop in terms of construction, Jason, during the pandemic, or do we still have stuff that's coming online? Because it sounds like we're going to need it. Yeah, uh, construction was deemed an essential service, thankfully, last year. So um, it paused briefly and then got back on track. And um, we have a record amount of uh, new supply of office space coming downtown, a significant amount of industrial space being built. And then we also have these uh, suburban town centers, which are um, you know former malls that are on transit that are becoming these mixed-use villages. So still quite a bit of construction happening. So do you think that will help ease up on some of this demand that you're talking about? Uh, for industrial, I don't think we can build enough. Um, so probably not. But um, yeah, potentially with, uh, with office space, um, more new supply coming on over the next three years, it, it can, it can uh, be a little bit, right. a bit of a relief valve for that demand. I guess with industrial, it's like, where do you build it, right? How you can't just keep building it farther out because then you've got transportation costs. Yeah, I mean, we, it's been shifting further south and east over the past decade, really. Um, you know, we're seeing markets like Abbotsford and Chilliwack uh, with strong demand for uh, new construction projects. Um, there's a really interesting one in South Burnaby that's uh, multi-story industrial, and that's the first of its kind in Canada. So, um, yeah, people are, are getting creative and, and continuing to kind of push further east uh, to build industrial. And what do you think this says then about the health of the BC economy for 2021? Uh, it's very positive. Uh, as I was saying earlier on, commercial real estate is closely tied to the underlying economy, and you know BC is expected to be one of the faster growing provincial economies for 2021. So it's positive. Well, that's good to hear. All right, Jason, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, you bet. Thanks a lot. Have a good day. That's Jason Kisselback. He's a senior vice president and managing director of CBRE Vancouver. They, of course, are the large commercial real estate and analysis company there talking about um, what it looks like for the commercial market, industrial, commercial, all that kind of stuff. And I thought that there would be a lot more vacancy in terms of offices in downtown Vancouver, given all the talk last year about 
demographics shifting, people working from home. And sure, there was a little bit, as Jason pointed out, but still so much demand out there that we still have uh, one of the tightest markets in North America on that front. All right, let's talk about uh, something that everybody seems like we were talking about over the last couple of weeks, having to do with the Perseverance rover that landed on Mars. It was a big deal, right? Big deal for NASA. Those pictures were going around and around. Did you know, though, that there's actually a company right here in Richmond that had a key, key role in making that happen? Joining us now to talk about how their equipment ended up more than 200 million kilometers from Earth, Sadiq Panjwani joins us with Flare Systems Incorporated. Sadiq, thanks so much for being here. Simi, a pleasure to be with you today. Now tell me, it's your cameras, right, that are on the rover? That is correct. So we had six cameras on this mission. Four of those cameras were on the entry, descent, and landing module, uh, from which we saw some incredible pictures and two of the cameras are on rover itself. Okay, Sadiq, come on. How does a company from Richmond get its cameras on a rover for Mars? Well, first of all, it is very exciting. Uh, as a company, we have been engaged in past and continue to be part of space missions in private sector along with government programs. Okay, was this a long time coming? Did you have to compete to make this happen? Like, What is it about your cameras that make them suitable for this? So it is, uh, it started off back in 2014 and 2015 timeframe. So it's a long time coming. Uh, Our cameras are particularly designed to be used uh, on Earth uh, and tested to work in one of the most challenging industrial environments to work in 24 and 27 environments. So, uh, you know, we have never created a camera for space itself uh, that will work on no gravity and temperatures. So we were thrilled that NASA put it to the test. Yeah, how do they how do they do that? So, like, what kind of um, areas are your cameras designed to work in? So, typically, these are machine vision cameras. Uh, consider a machine vision camera as an eye of a machine, allowing it to extract information from a digital picture. Typically, they are used in an industrial environment. Uh, this, uh, you know, to guide, to identify, to inspect, and gauge different kind of uh, situations. Uh, and we saw examples of some of these applications as part of videos that were released by NASA, uh, whether they were looking at the parachute with the right and red and white pattern uh, on it to identify how it opens, the direction of the rover or the descent uh, that we were seeing the rover was doing. Sadiq, that must have been so stressful for you, though, because this is your camera on this and the whole it felt like the whole world was watching. It, it, it was an incredible experience. And I must say that there were moments, uh, just because we have never seen this before, uh, it was both with joy and it was also coming with uh, a lot of unknowns uh, by itself. So uh, we, were, we, were, we were very thrilled. And once we started looking at the videos and picture, we were full of joy. So did it go the way you and your team expected it to go? Like, was everything good? I think it went way beyond that. So, you know, NASA uses the term seven minutes of terror to describe this event of entry, descent, and landing. Uh, And they use this terminology uh, because the event uh, is much quicker than the signal that can reach the Earth. Uh, So the engineers who are overlooking the overall event are not able to either guide or direct the Perseverance landing. And the rover have to perform a landing by itself with no human guidance involved. Um, and, and the role of machine vision camera in situations like this 
is a typical use case that we see in industrial where cameras are automated at a very high speed in order to capture information to make informed decisions. Right. But you can't really buy this kind of advertising, Sadiq. So what does this mean for your company to be involved in this? Well, that is that is an excellent question. You know, our story is of a Canadian spirit founded in the fabric of innovation. Uh, it speaks to our dedication to quality product and quality manufacturing, which happens in Canada, which we are extremely proud of. Uh, and it allows many of our customers uh, to use our technology for a variety of high performance and complex applications. So it was great to witness this historic moment and to be part of this journey with NASA. And, and my congratulations to the entire NASA team as well as FLIR team who have worked so hard over so many years to see this historic uh, event in, in making. So you guys were working on this all throughout the pandemic then, so it sounds like maybe the pandemic did not affect your company very much. Well, we, we certainly uh, provide, we were totally operational throughout COVID. Um, we have been providing a lot of solution to medical customers as well who are using our technology and fight against COVID as well. So we are thrilled uh, to provide solutions that solves a variety of different needs. So what's next then, Sadiq? I mean, this is pretty big. Where do you go from here? Well, you know, this this certainly tells me, uh, you know, what humans are capable of. Uh, and, you know, uh, this is this is this is one of the moments that that we're defining us. It changes our perspective on what we know, what we are capable of, how technology enhances our perception awareness and what future holds for us. So I'm really excited and thrilled as this mission comes back as well as our involvement with many technological uh, innovation to see how our technology continues to improve productivity, safety, and health. I understand, though, like you, you this is a constant uh, kind of stress for you, right? Because you, this, this, these cameras have to keep on working during the mission. So our cameras were used specifically for entry, descent, and landing. That was the primary use case for these particular cameras where we have already seen the videos. The two cameras on the rovers will continue to be on the rover, uh, and, and NASA would be better suited to answer the question about how they plan to use some of these cameras. Right, but it worked out well for you guys, so thank you so much for your time this morning. You're welcome, Simi. Pleasure to be part of it. That is Sadiq Panjwani, who's the Global Vice President and General Manager of FLIR Systems Incorporated. They are a company in Richmond, and their cameras were the cameras that were on or are on the Perseverance rover. And those images of the descent and the landing and the parachute opening, that's their equipment. So it was a local company that was deeply involved in making sure that was successful and in making sure that people all over the world could see it. And I'm sure you saw that too. So congratulations to them. After in-depth reviews of the evidence, we have determined that these vaccines meet the department's stringent safety, efficacy, and quality requirements. That is Dr. Supriya Sharma, that is the Chief Medical Advisor at Health Canada, overseeing vaccine approvals. She is part of a technical briefing on the approval of the AstraZeneca vaccine that is taking place in Ottawa right now. So joining us to talk about how this compares to the existing vaccines we have and how significant the infusion of vaccine doses might be to our national rollout plan. Well, we have infectious disease expert host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, Jason Tetro. Hi, Jason. Hello. Okay, so how do you view this news? Good news? It's about time. <laughs> That's basically how I see it. And now hearing the technical briefing and also looking at all the regulatory uh, uh, decision-making um, that you can find at covidvaccine.canada.ca, 
it, nothing has really changed since January. All that's really happened is that there were some studies that were done after approval in the UK and also some of the information that was given to the European Medical Agency's EMA, and then that was shared with us. But for the most part, the only thing that's changed was that in January, the vaccine was going to be perfect for people from 18 to 55, and now it's for anyone over the age of 18. Okay, so what is the difference, though, with this vaccine? Is it, is it made differently? Does it react differently? Well, this particular vaccine is different from Pfizer and Moderna in that instead of using a fat globule uh, that was made in uh, British Columbia, what they're doing is they're actually taking um, an adenovirus. It's, it's actually a common cold virus, but it's not the same one that you and I would actually get um, on a daily basis. Uh, those ones we number like adenovirus 4, adenovirus 5, adenovirus 40. This one is actually a little bit different because it comes from uh, chimpanzees, not from humans. And as a result of that, it doesn't actually cause any infection in us. So the virus gets in and it produces the spike protein the same way as a virus would produce its normal pieces. And then that gets recognized by the immune system. So in a way, it's a relatively um, efficient manner of being able to provide the spike protein, but it's not necessarily as effective as you would see from, say, the Moderna or the Pfizer. And that's one of the reasons why you've probably already heard it has a lower uh, um, effectiveness against uh, reinfection. Mm -hmm. What is that efficacy rate? Well, right now it's standing at around 62.1%. Um, that actually is based on a number of different studies. They've uh, conducted, I think it's five of them now. And each one has been taking place in different areas around the world. And they have different efficacies. So this is sort of um, a pooling of all that data and then an averaging out. Okay. So is this going to have, do you th is it just like one more kind of thing that we can have in our arsenal just in case we need it? Well, this is the thing to be honest with you, because unlike Pfizer which and Moderna, which now both require minus 20 or, you know, the ice cream concept when it comes to transferring and storing, you can actually transfer and store this particular vaccine at uh, refrigeration temperature, which means that anybody who actually is in charge of healthcare, who has a fridge, can actually take hmm. this vaccine, put it into their stocks, and be able to start vaccinating people. What this does is it opens up. So before, with Pfizer especially, but also Moderna, you had to take the vaccine and you had to bring the people to the vaccine, right? right. In this particular case, you could take the vaccine and bring it to the people. And that's what we've been looking for. That's what we've been needing to be able to really hasten up the end of this pandemic. See, Jason, this is why we talk to you. You explain it so well to us. Uh, listen, thanks so much for your time this morning. Hey, no problem at all. That's Jason Tetro, infectious disease expert and host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, explaining the difference with this AstraZeneca vaccine, which just got the approval this morning from Health Canada, versus the two vaccines we already have approved here, and that is the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. We will be hearing more about this. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau expected to speak on this topic and more coming up at 8.30, and we will have that for you. It's a very popular topic in this province, and that is BC parks and campgrounds. They're very popular in any year, but especially during the pandemic, they have been incredibly crowded and busy. The other day, we talked about that Metro Vancouver report that there were more than a million visits to regional parks just in the month of January. 
So let's talk about some new destinations the provincial government is hoping to have come online in the next couple of years. Joining us now is Melanie Mark, the Minister of Tourism, Arts and Culture and Sport. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Is there a real need, do you think, to beef up this area for British Columbians to travel in their own province? Oh, it's vitally important that we make sure um, that we've got uh, places to go, places to road trip and load our families in our cars and get out and camp and uh, visit those trails and maintain our mental health um, and really support the tourism economy. Uh, That is what this investment is about. It's really making sure that we are ready to be responsive and open the doors um, when it's safe to do so and really support uh, a sector that's been really hard hit. Um, But fundamentally, it's about those places that we love, those jewels, those camping places that we bring our families. Um, I often went to Cultus Lake as a kid. Uh, We're investing in uh, a lakeside trail, for example, at Cultus Lake, an environmentally friendly tourism resort out at the Catsy First Nation. Um, And if you ever have a chance to visit Haida Gwaii, um, visit the Heritage Centre, where we're also investing in in that cultural um, building. So, very exciting. I would love to visit Haida Gwaii. haven't gotten there yet, but I understand there's something like 54 outdoor recreation projects. Can you give me the idea? Is it trails? Is it campgrounds? What is it? It's trails, it's campgrounds, it's signage, it's washrooms. Uh, For those of you that, you know, go camping or out out in the bush, um, those amenities are vitally important. Um, Trails that are well-kept and maintained. Um, It's so, you know, like, I want to give you an example of what the Sahelis Heritage Trail is going to mean um, to the nation out in, um, pardon me, the Sahelis villages. They're saying that we envision the trail as a critical link between the past and the present. Elders and youth, traditional teachings and education, and importantly, our community and others who will wish to learn about us and our rich history and homeland. So it's an invitation as well for British Columbians to visit communities across the province. Uh, Tourism in Pemberton is investing in camping amenities and upgrades to high-use trails. Um, I, take, I just took my dog to, um, to Dog Mountain up at uh, Seymour the other day. Someone's got to maintain those trails and make sure that the signage is visible and that it's safe. So there's a lot of uh, ingenuity that went into this. Um, the goal was uh, for projects to be shovel-ready. Um, the intent is also to employ people and get people out working, youth, women, First Nations, uh, supporting apprentices. As the former Minister of Advanced Education, Skills and Training, I'm, I'm deeply passionate about uh, people getting their red seals. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge training opportunity as well uh, through this initiative. So what kind of planning goes into this? Like, it's great to have all these new projects, but th- they must be years in the making because you can't just decide that, oh, we're going to put a trail in there. Yeah, good question. So this is a part of our Stronger BC Economic Recovery Plan. It was announced in the fall. Uh, the intent, the call for proposals for, was for projects to be shovel-ready. We want people to be working, we want these projects to be out the door. And often there are nations and nonprofits and communities that have those ideas on on their books, but they just don't have the resources. This is a $20 million investment. It's a grant. It's not a loan um, to invest in that infrastructure that is going to fundamentally 
um, help the tourism sector and invite people to play outside and visit their communities and road trips. Um, so the intent was for it to be ready to go. The money has to get out the door quickly and the projects need to be complete. Some infrastructure takes a little bit longer, but the projects need to be complete by 2023. Okay, so you're saying they're going to be under construction then for the next couple of years? Oh, they're, they're starting. As soon as the checks are out the door, they're starting. They're oh. ready to go. They're, people are going to be getting to work right away. All of, all of the projects, again, working with the ministry, the proponents had to demonstrate that they had a business case in, in place to be able to get to work on, on these projects. And many of these communities are in dire need to have some of that capital investment that doesn't often come their way. Yeah. Um, our government recognizes through this pandemic that we really need to be investing in infrastructure, people, jobs, and to have that uh, industry ready to go when, uh, when it's safe to do so. So and speaking it, of the vaccine, as you mentioned earlier today, very exciting news that we are getting closer to the finish line. Yes, hopefully. Um, so is this like all over the province then? Does it run the whole gamut? Yeah, good question. So our, our intent is to also invest in, you know, all of the postal codes across BC. So 54 of the projects are specific to tourism, but a total of 149 with partnership of my other colleagues, Minister Osborne and Minister Conroy, are throughout the province. So a total of 149 tourism-related projects are going to be available across the province. Okay, now I know we, you know, for spring break, that's coming up for a lot of families. We can't really travel. Um, Are there, do you think, enough local destinations to keep people busy during this spring break? Like, what would you suggest people do? I believe it's March 8th that we can start registering for camping, um, according to Minister Heyman. We definitely have to get outside. As I said, with my dog and my children, I get out to Dog Mountain. I go for hikes. It's one of the safest things we can do. When we promoted uh, Family Day last week, um, it's safe to go swimming, it's safe to go skating. Those are activities that I'll be taking my children to over, over the break. Um, but yeah, anything that we can do outside. The camping, I don't know if we're really camping in March. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Brave so people might, yes. <laughs> brave people, but we can book our camping trips for, for the summer and start having a sense of optimism and excitement that the summer is near and we are going to be able to get outside. The, the investments that we're looking at for this initiative, um, one example for tourism in Pemberton, again, is they're, they're, invest, they're investing in a very highly used trail um, up in the Sea to Sky Corridor, and you can visit the Chiquemis Ecological Reserve in Squamish, so there's some, there's some places to go close to home. For those well, of us that live in Vancouver. We'll I'll have to be checking those out. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Have a great day. You too. That's Melanie Mark, Minister of Tourism, Arts, Culture and Sport, talking about these 54 outdoor recreation projects that they are getting underway. This is part of the Community Economic Recovery Infrastructure Program. So you wonder where, you know, all that funding was going from the federal and the provincial governments. This is this is some of that money. Uh, they hope to support local communities, especially the ones that are hardest hit in the tourism industry. But you know what this province needs? We need more campgrounds right? We need more places for people to go right in our province. She mentioned the opening of the camping portal coming up on March the 8th. It's going to be jammed. 
it's going to be jammed. I have no doubt that on March the 8th, we're going to be talking about how the site went down right away because so many people were trying to get on and book campsites for the summer. I think that shows you what kind of demand there is uh, for people to do some more traveling right here in BC. Falls Creek community is a vibrant one, but it's also one that it was developed years ago. And now residents who live in that community are saying they want transparency from the city as public consultations are wrapping up this weekend. So there's a planning committee for the area and members say the city is going to use those results in closed door meetings to decide the future of that community. So let's talk about this. Joining us is the chair of the replan committee of the Falls Creek South Neighborhood Association, Richard Evans. Richard, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Cindy. So why is this all under discussion right now? I think a lot of people don't understand how the future of False Creek is up for discussion. Well, it's been up for discussion for actually about 12 years since I've become involved, and it's been a a long time. And so the process has been, um, you know, kind of fits and starts, really. We have planning direction or uh, policy direction from council and then we have and then it stops and we it, it, we're kind of left wondering what to do right because a lot of that is city-owned land right that's correct about 80 percent of the land down here between the Camby and the Bar street bridges is on city-owned land correct yes and are the leases coming up for renewal there's some leases actually coming up for uh, uh, renewal very quickly. There's two co-ops that are facing renewal within the next couple of years. Uh, the co-op that I live in is 2036, and then there's some in 2045, I believe. Okay, so what are they talking about changing? Well, that's we don't really know. It's uh, can't uh, have, we in terms of what we're thinking about and the, the vision we have. The change includes. Um, um, uh, adding more homes. We're talking about affordable homes. We're talking about, um, you know, uh, basically increasing the accessibility of affordable housing down here. We don't know uh, exactly what the city's plans are. So are that's such a, a great mix of housing down there. And it was such a kind of pioneering community to begin with. I would imagine that there are a lot of concerns about kind of messing with that successful formula. Uh, yeah, you know, I live in a co-op where 51% of my, uh, in the co- uh, 51% of the co-ops have incomes below $60,000 per year, for example. And these co-ops have and then don't receive subsidies because they're internal mechanisms that link housing charges to household income. So yes, there's lots of good things here about the affordability that we've created and sustained over the years. And what is the message that you and your association has been getting from the city on this? Well, the messaging we're getting from the planning that was done back in 2018 and then stopped is that we've got basic foundational principles, which we've been working with. And then lately, we do not know what the what the plan will be coming out of this current process. So you submitted all your information, the community talked to the city, and you don't know what the next steps are? Um, not really, no. This is, this is now uh, the process from this decision, uh, this the survey, it will become a, what they call an in-camera process with council. So it goes behind closed doors when it comes to this kind of thing. So we don't know, know what the policy decisions will be. I can see how that would be stressful then. Are they talking about building towers or like, will it change how that area looks, do you think, Richard? Well, no, uh, 
No, you know, the kind of things we're talking about is appropriately designed housing that enhances community building and fosters connections and social inclusion. So, you know, the kind of density or urban design qualities that we're really looking for is that what you have in existing housing is that this kind of depth of affordability we have is irreplaceable. And these buildings that we have can last indefinitely with proper financing for maintenance. That's what I was wondering, too. Like, we don't build co-ops like that anymore, do we? No, and we certainly can. We've got, we can certainly expand the model we have here. Uh, there's lots of potential along the vacant lands along 6th Avenue. We can be building um, lots more affordable housing. We can um, uh, build what we're calling a campus of care and, and different things. There's lots of capacity along 6th uh, Avenue yeah. that we're advocating for. All right. Well, Richard, thanks very much for your time. Oh, you're welcome, Cindy. Thanks for having me. That's Richard Evans, chair of the replan committee of the False Creek South Neighborhood Association. You may not realize that, but that a lot of that is city-owned land down there in False Creek between Camby and Burrard. Uh, the bridge is there, and there is a plan underway to figure out what to do with it in the future. But the model of housing down there has been very successful. There are lots of co-ops down there. And you know what? There just aren't enough co-ops being built or used anymore. But in the 70s and the 80s, that was a highly successful way to get a great mix of housing. And uh, the city is still working on their plan. I would imagine that would be quite nerve-wracking for residents. Found a way in, simi at cknw.com.